So our scripture reading this morning is Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. So as we enter into Hebrews, I want to reset, uh, remind us of why this letter was written and why it is that we are uh, jumping into it. Uh, So, well, the first reason we're jumping into it is I've been excited to preach Hebrews for a very long time, right? And so I get to set sort of the preaching schedule, and I love this book, and I've wanted to preach it for pretty much the entire time that I've ever been in ministry, right? So like the last 12 years of my life, and now I get the chance to. Uh, But Hebrews is written, it's a letter, we don't know the author, but it's a letter written to a people who are struggling They're feeling, if you recall, light persecution, mild persecution. It's a persecution nonetheless. Being a Christian, following Jesus, uh, it's not easy. The culture is set against them. To follow Jesus is to slowly be marginalized, or in some cases to be marginalized at a very quickening rate. For them, they saw what was happening. They saw, as it were, the writing on the wall. And many of these believers that this letter is written to had begun saying, you know what, in this culture, in this time, it's actually safer, easier, whatever, to to walk away from Jesus. To turn back to the life that we lived before Jesus. And the author of this letter, we don't know who they were, the author of this letter is imploring them to to follow Jesus, imploring them to keep the faith, imploring them to move further, reminding them, telling them over and over and over again. And some of you may need to hear this in, in a culture where it is honestly increasingly difficult to navigate Christian faith. It's increasingly difficult to speak Christian things. Are we persecuted? No. Our brothers and sisters around the world are persecuted. And, and listen, I don't want to compare suffering too much, even though I just did, right? <laughs> but we prayed for 222 ministries in Turkey. And we have friends of friends who've been imprisoned without any sort of court date, without, right? Remember how long and hard we prayed for Pastor Andrew. And, and God, God moved, and, and he was released from the Turkish prisons. But, but, but none of us fear going to prison 
simply for the name of Jesus. We have brothers and sisters in Christ in Iran. We have brothers and sisters in Christ in in parts of North Africa and China where the name of Christ doesn't just mean that you get called names that you maybe don't feel, right? But, But it's threatening to your life. But nonetheless, that does not change the fact that it is increasingly difficult to articulate a Christian faith and to stay sort of in the centers of society. I'm not assigning value to that. I I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, but it is the thing. And so in some ways we can identify with these Hebrew, uh, these, these recipients of this letter to the Hebrews. We can identify with the difficulty and the questioning of faith as, as it plays out in society. And this author, this, this writer of this letter, wants to encourage them and exhort them. He wants to give them hope. And he wants to give them warning to follow in the faith, to continue on after Jesus. And I love how the letter begins. Think about all the other letters in the scriptures. Paul, a bondservant of Christ, to the church in Corinth, Philippi. You know, Paul, a bondservant of Christ, to my brothers and sisters in Rome. Peter, a slave of Jesus, to my fellow elect exiles of the dispersion grace and peace to you, right? Like it's a letter. It's very much a letter. Hebrews reads more like a really good sermon mixed with speech, mixed with commentary. Like, like listen to how it starts and, and tell me like for a second, forget that it's the scriptures. It's the scriptures. Don't forget it. But you know what I mean? And just <laughs> l- listen to how this starts. Long ago, Right, I'm already there. Right? <laughs> like, I'm seeing this scrolling in yellow. <laughs> Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Like, that's a good start. Like, like I'm ready to keep reading, aren't you? Like, th- if you want to, like, get me hooked in and Im- implore me to read, like, that's a really good start. But it's good start for another reason. Like, there's a theological setting. There's a theological placement that this book gets placed into, right? And that is that we have a theology, an understanding of God. If you grew up Hebrew or if you grew up... <clears throat> If you grew up Hebrew or if you grew up Jewish in this time or if you converted into Christianity, you converted into an understanding of God that was very different from from all of the other understandings. Here's a God who has uh, who is eternally existent. He exists in and of himself. Right. So think about that in the time in like the Greco-Roman world. Think about the Greek gods for a second. Right. Like this. They're, they're not eternally existent. There are always more stories of the gods that came before, right? So there's like the, the Greek gods and then they're the children of like the main gods, Zeus and Hera and right, the main gods. But they kind of 
happen out of Gaius and, and <laughs> like, uh, we don't need to go into all of that, right? Like, that's strange. The Titans, right? And then before the Titans. Like, there's, there's always stories about where these gods or where these people, like, these entities came from. Or if you come to, or, or... Conversely, if you go more to the ancient Near East, like these gods sort of are creation themselves, right? Like this god is Ra, the sun god, but it's, it's more or less the sun, right? But Baal, Baal, right? Like it's the god of fertility, but it's more or less the waters, right? It is creation. We craft images and they look like weird amalgamations of creatures, but here is the Hebrew Judeo-Christian understanding of God, and God just is, necessarily is. And God creates, and God is spirit, and God is physical, and God touches that which is, which is dirt and physical, and not only that, this God who is spirit speaks. God speaks. Like the power of words, and I get it, right? Zeus speaks. He spoke to Hercules, and he's, you know, would speak, right? Those gods would speak. So it's not terribly unusual that a god would speak, but the way that this god seems to speak over the years and never contradicts himself and never, and he speaks, listen to this, listen, at many times and in many ways. What a great way to approach the scriptures, right? In our Western mindset, we tend to flatten the scriptures, don't we? And we tend to read it like Westerners, like modern Westerners. But when you look at this text, it's, it's at many times, like millennia, and in many ways, it's genre matters through poems and through, through histories and, 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 and through prophetic utterance. Thus says the Lord, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in this last day, he has spoken to us by his son. God is a God who speaks. God is a God who has been speaking. God is a God who has spoken definitively in Jesus. And God is a God who, through the Spirit of Christ, still speaks to us. What a, what a remarkable way to start this. Because now what he's saying is, listen, listen to the story of this God, the God who speaks and who has spoken to us. It matters that he has spoken, and it matters how he has spoken. He spoke long ago by the prophets. Now, let's go into that word for just a second. It's important because it's going to set the stage for sort of the rest of our study in this. Prophet here, we're not just talking about Isaiah or Ezra or Nahum, who we studied a couple series ago. When we say prophet here, it's, it's one who speaks the words of the Lord, right? So prophecy is not foretelling in the Bible. Sometimes foretelling happens, but most accurately prophecy is foretelling. Thus says the Lord. Which means prophetic utterances can come from even those who weren't deemed prophets, like angels, and like kings, and like women who sang songs and prayed prayers for their children and it was recorded in scripture 
these prophetic utterances, these thus says the Lord, these, these things are trustworthy and true. God has spoken through the prophets. But in these last days, and we'll talk about that, that idea of last days in a few weeks, actually. He has spoken to us by his son. And so now we get into the entire premise of this book. Because you see, this, it's called the letter to the Hebrews because it was written likely to a Hebrew sort of Jewish audience. An, an audience that grew up in Judaism and converted to Christianity and is now seeing that maybe it's easier to go back away from Christianity. And so he's saying, uh, listen... God spoke through the prophets, but in these last days, in this time, he has spoken to us by his son. Which means that if you ought to have given ear, which you ought to have, to the prophets, then even more so, you must give ear to Jesus. Alright? You with me? Let's keep going. So now the author has set the entire book around Jesus. And, and this is partially why I love this book is because we don't, a lot of times you'll hear a pastor preach and so they'll do one of two things, right? So they'll take a, a story like David and Goliath and they'll make David and Goliath about us, right? Like David, he had all his faith. He picked up his stones, he threw it at the head of Goliath. He destroyed Goliath. If you have faith, you pick up your stones and you slay your giants, right? And it's like, cool, but we miss the fact that actually David is, is a type of Jesus and that Jesus has defeated our giants and that we're much more like the Israelites on the sidelines, sort of like, that's a big giant. Maybe we should just, <laughs> and, and then Jesus comes up and he's like, I don't need the weapons of the world. I don't need your swords and your... Just give me some stones and, and sin and death and all of those things that plague us. Jesus, our great and glorious David, has defeated and conquered. That's a sermon in itself. We should pray and pack it up, right? He has defeated <laughs> us. And we get the victory because we are his people, just like the Israelites got the victory because of what David did, right? And so sometimes you see people and they make everything about us and we're the hero and it's on us. And then sometimes you see people and they're like, well, I know it's supposed to be about Jesus. And every story becomes sort of this where's Waldo of Jesus. Like, how do we find <laughs> Jesus in this story? Well, there was a rock there and Jesus is the rock. So maybe Jesus is the rock. This rock is Jesus. And if you pick up your rock, put it in your sling, you sling Jesus. In, right. And it's like, that's, that's also like, that's a stretch. I love Hebrews because it's like, let me show you. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Fam, it's all about Jesus. Our lives, our walk, this world, it's all about Jesus. And so we see that here. He's spoken to us through his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And we begin to see this unpacked. Christ is the end. And also the beginning, which is a weird way to do it. So I'm going to switch that around because that's how we think. Christ is the beginning and the end of God's creative and redemptive purposes on earth. Christ is the beginning and the end 
Revelation says it this way, right? Jesus in Revelation says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Listen to how this author is saying this. He says that Jesus, the Son, is appointed the heir of all things, right? It's all for Jesus. All things. Jesus inherits from God. It's all for Jesus, All of this is leading towards a great and glorious inheritance for our great and glorious Savior. And this is a good thing for us. So now think about this if you are in the midst of persecution. Or think about this if you're confused about how things are going to go. He starts off by saying God has appointed Jesus the heir of all things. Which means God is actually giving Jesus all things. Now what? type of gift would God the Father give Jesus the Son? Only good gifts. So the fact that Jesus is inheriting all things is a promise that God is going to make all things new. Good. Have you ever considered that? The fact that Jesus is the heir, getting the gift and the inheritance from God is assurance because God would not give Jesus, God would not give himself something that is not perfect and good. It is assurance that all that is evil, all that is wrong, all that is broken will pass away and all that is good will stay. How wonderful is that? Went to bed last night to the news of Odessa, Texas, another shooting. So commonplace. And while we feel so small and while there seems like there's so much we need to address in this, do you know what measure of assurance I received? It was this. That somewhere, somewhere, there's a little, there's a little ticking number wheel, I don't even know. And it just ticked down a number. And it's going to keep ticking down and keep ticking down till it hits zero. And one day there will be a last. There will be last shooting. There will be a last person who loses their life to cancer. There will be a last child who dies of hunger. I say this a lot, don't I? I do. I, I say this a lot because we need to hear it again and again. These things, these... <laughs> last week I talked about the Lord of the Rings. We're going to talk about it again, right? <laughs> because we actually watched The Two Towers this last week. And in the movies, they kind of change it up, but in the book, Samwise Gamgee has this moment, and it says that he's filled with sort of this hope, and he realizes that the darkness, that the shadow, is but a small and passing thing. The author of this letter wants to encourage their recipients that this is light momentary affliction, as Paul would have said. That this is a small and passing thing. And that God has promised for his son an inheritance. But not only that. We, and this has been a Christian understanding from the beginning, we are co-heirs with Christ. Which means all of this suffering is, as Paul said, producing for you a weight of glory of that final 
inheritance. God does not just have something good in store for Jesus. God has something good in store for all who hide themselves in him. He's the heir of all things. But he's also the one through whom God created the world. So he's the end, but he's also the beginning. And I love that because it says God has spoken through the prophets, but God spoke definitively through his son. And when we think about creation, John says that Jesus is the word that was in the beginning, right? Before all things and that by him, all things were made. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Genesis 1 talks about it this way, that, that God speaks everything. God speaks creation into existence. God creates and separates and fills by the power of his word. God speaks over us and we are saved. Like the word of God, Jesus is the agent of creation. Jesus, God spoke creation into being through Christ. God speaks recreation. He speaks redemption into the world and to us also through Christ. And so we get this notion of the fact that Christ is the end and the beginning of God's creative and redemptive purposes in everything. It's it's like we talked about last week, and we're going to see this theme over and over again. It's the mission of God. God is doing something remarkable in this world. But then he goes on, and not only does he give us sort of this robust missiology of Jesus, he gives us a robust Christology, like the study of Jesus. He says that Christ is the full embodiment of God. This is outrageous. Like, apart from Paul in Colossians 2 saying that uh, he's the image of, or Colossians 1, 21, sorry, that he's the image of the invisible God, like, this is the most direct, like, Jesus is God. Right, like that that's actually a critical part of our theology. He says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We get this robust Christology that Jesus is the Christ and that Christ is the full embodiment of God on earth. He's the radiance of his glory, right? And so uh, we, 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 went, we went with uh, the Lord of the Rings, so let's bring it down to, to the Chronicles of Narnia, right? And, and if you remember, or maybe you don't, in, in The Voyage of the Dawn Shredder, Eustace is having a conversation with Aslan. And it, it, I can't remember the full context of it, but they're talking about stars because like stars are like people. And if you remember, Caspian actually ends up marrying the daughter of a star. How can stars have daughter, daughters? Stars are just giant balls of burning gas is what Eustace says. And what Aslan says is that's what stars are made up of, but it is not what a star is, right? And we talk about the composition of something. You are bone and marrow and sinew and protein and fat and fatty acids and and carbon and water, lots and lots of water. You are more than carbon and chemical. You are more than the sum of your parts. That's what you're made up of. It's not what you are. Likewise, we tend to talk about God and we think about God and we try to break God down into 
composite parts and we say things like omniscient and omnipotent and immutable and all of these Greek words and these philosophical words that we've appropriated for our faith and maybe those things are true and most of them are true. We, we believe, <laughs> want to make sure I said maybe and some of y'all are like, what? <laughs> like, like we, we have an orthodox theology and an orthodox faith, but God is a person. God is personal which means God is more than just the, the systematic components that we break him down to in theology. And so we don't measure, we don't, we don't, we don't speak about the sun like, oh, you know, the, the excess heat that's emanating from that burning chemical reaction, really, I better put some suntan lotion on. Uh, or whatever, right? Like we say it is warm or it is hot or that sun is bearing down on us. Like uh, we talk about things as being sun-kissed. There's like this personification. And so we don't think about like in our day-to-day lives, we don't think about the sun in terms of chemical reactions. We think about light and we think about heat and we think about temperature. And these are not the, these are the radiance, the the radiance of the glory of the sun. And likewise, Jesus is that radiance, the effect of the fullness of who God is on earth. The warmth of the sun. The life and the energy that comes from the sun. Is that the sun? Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is. And it's the way that we experience the sun practically. And this is Jesus. He's the full radiance. He's the radiance of the glory of God. And then I love this next one. The, he's the exact, the exact imprint of his nature. This goes so well with this idea of words coming from God. Because if you think about a message from a king, what would they do? They would take the letter and they would pour a little candle wax on it. And then the king's ring would seal the wax. And what is that doing? It's making an imprint of the ring. And the imprint of the ring carries the full authority of the ring itself. When you see the imprint, you are seeing the ring. And that's how it was understood. And that's how we understand it. It, Jesus is the seal. And I love this too, because I think of all of creation as sort of that candle wax. And in the incarnation, God pressed God's Son in the person of Jesus into the universe and made an imprint that has forever reshaped how the universe is. Jesus is the full imprint of the nature of God. Also, because... If, 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 if you're going to get a full me sermon, you're going to get some like fantasy and you're also going to get some superhero stuff. And so it's, it's like bullets in the dark night. And if you follow me on this, you already know where I'm going. If not, I'll explain. There's a scene in the dark night with the Joker and Heath Ledger and just a fantastic movie where they're trying to figure out who a shooter is. And so Batman like takes this bullet hole and he, that's in the wall. He takes like cuts the wall out and pulls it out because there's an imprint in there and he's able to use like a machine to fill it and then reconstruct the bullet and get the fingerprint. Like, I don't know that that's possible except for it's Bruce Wayne, so of course it's possible, right? But he's able from the imprint 
to get the full reality of the bullet and of the person who owned the bullet and of truth, right? Like that imprint. Like in other words, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know who God would roll with, look at who Jesus rolled with. Like if you want to know what God would be concerned about, look at the things Jesus spent his time talking about and giving himself to. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. And then, so there's that, that radiance of his glory, that imprint of his nature, and the upholding power of God. He upholds the universe by his power. And I love this because that's God's job, which means Jesus' job is God's job. There's vocational unity between the Father and the Son. Jesus is God, which means his words are not simply trustworthy and true, but they are binding What a beautiful Christology to start this. And then finally, he comes into this biblical theology. He's the fulfillment of the scriptures. You might not have caught that here. But it says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having, this is an interesting word, maybe underline it, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Having become. That's a process. It's a process. After making purification for sins, where do you do that? On the cross and in the grave. He then was resurrected and then ascended and exalted and glorified and his name is higher than the name even of the angels because he is far superior to that. It almost sounds like Philippians 2, where being equal with being God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be clenched onto, and, and he humbled himself to the point of uh, human form and then to a servant, humbled himself to the point of death, even on the cross. And, and because of this, God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every other name. But here, the author is very concerned with the fact that he's superior to the angels. Next week, we're going to spend a lot of time in the Psalms. This week, we're going to look at the one Psalm that, that Rebecca read earlier. And we're, we're just going to hear it and rehear it in light of Jesus. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established your strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Now, I don't know what translation you use. And I tend to like gender neutral translations because most of the times they get it right. Micah 6 8. He has shown thee, O mortals, O human being. Right? That word man there is that sort of like catch all for people, and we just use the masculine form, right? So he has shown you, O humanity, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. But sometimes, sometimes, as is the case here. That, that gendered language is actually really important because your translation may say, what are people that you are mindful of them? Or what is a person that you are mindful of them? And what are the children of people that you care for them? 
But this phrase is actually really important, even though David doesn't understand it as he's writing it. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man? Daniel's going to come back and he's going to appropriate that term son of man in a very prophetic way to talk about the one who is coming in the name of the Lord. What is the son of man that you care for him? Now listen to what David writes. It's so interesting. Do you have made him a little while lower than the heavenly beings? For a little bit. So again, you made him lower. At one point he wasn't lower. He was equal with God, considering equality with God something that's not to be grasped and clung on to, but lowered himself. You've made him a little while lower than the heavenly beings. You could also say angels. And crowned him with glory. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and put everything under his feet. So that little while means he was lower than the angels for a little while and exalted over all things, all sheep and oxen, also all beasts of the field, the birds of heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 doesn't even feel prophetic. How crazy is that? Like the author of, the, uh, of Hebrews is recognizing the prophetic value and nature of Psalm 8. And is saying that Jesus, he made purification for sin. He was lower than the angels. But then he was seated at the right hand of majesty and became as much superior to the angels as his as he has inherited a much more excellent name than theirs. He upholds all things by his power. Uh, and, and we're going to get into this later, so I don't want to, to spend too much time here. Suffice to say, he, the author here is beginning this comparison that establishes Jesus as greater and more ultimate than all of the blessings and promises of the Old Covenant. He is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. We're going to begin to see this juxtaposition between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those covenantal promises of God. It's this beautiful biblical theology that then forces us and teaches us and gives us the gift of reading all Scripture through the lens of Jesus. The Old Testament preparing for the Christ. The New Testament living life in light of the risen Christ. So what do we do with this? What do we do? First, be encouraged. Be encouraged. The Christ you follow, the Christ that you may even be wrestling with right now, that the Christ that you follow, that Jesus is risen. He's been given the name above all names. He is good. He is faithful. He is glorious. He is God. Secondly, we listen to the song. You may not have heard the lyrics to the chorus. I'll spare you singing them, right? Stop. Christ is speaking. Stop. Children, listen. You are children of God Most High, co-heirs with Christ. He is speaking. He has spoken. Listen. Now, they had heard his words as well. 
And what they were wrestling with was belief. So the encouragement then is to believe. Believe. Believe there is an exalted Christ. Stake everything on him. Stake everything on this mission of God and on this God who saves and on this God who speaks. And then follow him. Wherever he goes, follow him. I'm going to pray and then we're actually going to follow him to this table. So let's pray.